If you're ready to elevate your level of care and professional satisfaction, register today for the trusted DPC event that can help get you where you want to go. With three physician-led tracks focusing on starting a DPC practice, growing a DPC practice, and clinical expertise within a DPC practice, the Direct Primary Care Summit has content for anyone no matter where you are in your DPC journey. The DPC Summit is happening June 20th to 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Learn more and register today at dpcsummit.org. My name is Dr. Kissy Blackwell, and my mom is Dr. Rosa Torres. Mom, I'm so excited that you have decided to go into direct primary care. The truth is that you already did this when I was a kid. I remember being so excited to be part of your practice and seeing you building relationships with patients. I'm so excited that you've been able to get back to that good patient care and that you are now feeling more fulfilled in your practice of medicine. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. I love you so much, and I'm so proud of you. Hola, mi nombre es Claudia Ruiz. Vivo en Wichita Falls, Texas. Uh, quisiera expresarle mi gratitud a mi doctora Rosa Torres uh, por ser una doctora sumamente atenta, compasiva, que siempre va más allá y que trabaja incansablemente por, por el bien de sus pacientes. Eh, gracias infinitas por sus cuidados en estos últimos meses. Me siento sumamente bendecida de tenerla como mi médico. Espero que pase un feliz Día de las Madres. Muchísimas bendiciones. Direct Primary Care is an innovative alternative path to insurance-driven health care. Typically, patients pay their doctor a low monthly membership and, in return, build a lasting relationship with their doctor and have their doctor available at their fingertips. For me, it means going back to the roots of primary care. For me, it means freedom. For me, it's going back to take care of patients and practice medicine like we're supposed to do. I am Dr. Rosa Torres. I'm Dr. Oscar Torres. And this is our DPC story. Doctora Rosa Torres was born in León, Nicaragua, where she completed her medical education at the Universidad Nacional Autónoma de Nicaragua. She was doing an intensive care residency when war broke out, and she had to move to the United States with her husband, Dr. Oscar, and had one child, Dr. Kissy Blackwell, at the time they made their move. Dr. Oscar Torres Jr. was born in Managua, Nicaragua, and has been married to Dr. Rosa for over 40 years. He graduated from medical school from the Universidad Autónoma de Guadalajara in 1980. He practiced medicine in Nicaragua for two years before coming to the United States in 1982 because of communism and war. Together with his wife, barely speaking English, they moved to the U.S. and worked very hard to pass the required medical equivalencies before starting residency at the Wichita Falls Family Medicine Residency Program in Wichita Falls, Texas. Upon completion, Dr. Rosa worked as a faculty member in the same program. They graduated from the Wichita Falls Family Medicine Residency Program in 1991 and 1992. And then they opened their own practice, Texoma Family Clinic, in 1991 in Burke Burnett, Texas, and spent 23 years in a private practice before joining United Regional Physicians Group. Then, in January of 2019, they decided to open Texoma Direct Primary Care in Burke Burnett as well, making it the very first DPC clinic in Burke Burnett. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rosa and Dr. Oscar. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Now, at the time of this recording, you guys have just survived Snowmageddon 2021. How was that for you guys as as a family, but also for your practice? Well, it was a quite an adventure. We learned a lot uh, to survive, and the the patients learned how to survive also because they know how to get a hold of us for sure. Yeah, I guess with the teledoc or telemed that we had uh, available through the AtelCMD, you were able to kind of uh, access our patients. Uh, at home, and we didn't have to, uh, you know, kind of 
miss any kind of issues with the patients somewhere and be able to take care of them whenever uh, you know the situation was difficult to be in the office. So it wasn't that bad, and also might not be able to work at home through that because she have access through the address in the phone, the iPad, and her phone, and and uh, we we able to kind of access the records on the iPhone here at home and and send uh, prescriptions or whatever we need to send message to our patients. I'm glad that your patients were able to still get a hold of you under the conditions that Texas experienced. Yeah, that's very important. Now, I want to highlight that you guys are the parents of Dr. Kissy Blackwell in Wichita Falls. And I love that, that you three are all doing DPC. Yes, we are Dr. Kissy Blackwell's parents, and we have another daughter in medical school, last year of medical school, that is also thinking about going into DPC when she finishes residency. So pretty soon we will be four Tauruses. That's amazing. Is your second daughter in Texas as well? Yeah, she's in San Antonio. So let me ask you this. When you guys talk as a family, with you having entered the DBC world in your own clinic, with with Kissy having had her practice, what are some of the conversations that you guys have with your second daughter with regards to DPC and questions about DPC from a medical student's perspective? Well, I think, uh, you know, DPC that require, you know, a lot of your skills to be practiced at the office, okay? So you kind of miss some of the private practice, you know, after medical school, being in the hospital, being in the field, learning how to do a lot of different stuff. If you come directly from medical school to do DPC, you're going to have problems, okay? Because uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, procedures and stuff that you need to be doing and, uh, as a DPC doctor. and, and it's expected as a DPC doctor to take care of your patients so they don't have to go and spend a lot of money going and be referred. So I think that it will be wise for the medical student and when they go and uh, before going to DPC, kind of have some few years of practice in order to develop the skill that they need to be able to survive as a DPC doctor. Dr. Rosa, do you have anything to add to that? Well, this is one of the things that we are concerned about with our second daughter in medical school um, because it's true. Uh, we are going into, we went into DPC practice after more than 30 years of experience. And so a lot of what you do in DPC practice is basically based on experience and what you have learned through the years. So we wonder if she would be better going through years or a couple of years of uh, fee-for-service or some other kind of, you know, like a community health center or something for extra training. Even learning the the system uh, is not a bad idea before you go into DPC and decide if this is what you need to do. Our second daughter in medical school, her name is Carlos. It's actually Oscar backwards. Oscar, 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 Oscar. I love it. How did you guys pick Kissy's name? Have you ever read a book named uh, Roots? Yeah. So Kissy means stay put, but we changed the, the, we didn't put the ZZ because in Spanish there is no ZZ sound. So, so we just named her Kissy, K-I-S-S-I. That's where we got it from. Yeah. Just going back to, to your answer there. It's it's a very interesting take on a recommendation to other aspiring DPC docs because I definitely see where you're coming from. When I look back on my own having worked in fee-for-service for now more than five years, I appreciate direct primary care differently than I would have had I not gone into fee-for-service first. Yeah, and I think you're more secure of yourself and what you know and what you do. And you, we learn from others. So practicing with other physicians and learning from them is actually um, a very good experience. And it makes a difference between what it is, a pra- uh, you know, what do they call him now, a practitioner and a family practice doctor, you know. Absolutely. Now, you guys had your own private practice for 23 years prior to joining United Regional Physicians Group. Is that correct? 
Yes, yeah. that's correct. And it was in the same town where we are, same and building actually. Wow, that's that's pretty incredible. We actually signed in our contract. That was one of the things that we signed that uh, they were not going to. We were not going to have a complete clause in our contract if we decided to just you yeah, know they don't do it over here for no finish. Yeah, they don't do. It. Um, I mean, there is other clinics here that have the same compete clause and they make them pay money, you know, to kind of go and practice around certain kilometers of a distance. Otherwise, they have to move away to whatever the contract says. That is that is really wonderful that you guys were able to negotiate that into your contract. And because of that and because of you maintaining your uh, your presence in the same building, when you transition to DPC, did you have a lot of your patients who you've been taking care of for years come over to your DPC practice? That's correct. Yes. Yes. It made it easier to have patients come to our office, you know, uh, because we were able to actually contact the patients before we finished working with the hospital. So we created a small panel of patients when we were able to open our office. So we already had over 100, 200 patients. Yeah. So those are what those were our patients from before. But we did have a big panel before. I mean, we we had uh, thousands of patients that were not able to join us. And we did have a limit of patients we were going to take anyway. So that was the purpose, you know, trying to slow down and have a smaller panel. It goes back to smaller panels means more personalized care. It, it, it just, that's how, that's how DPC really brings value to patients. Right. Exactly. Are, are you full now? No, we're not full. Uh, this town, Burkornet, it's a, it's a small town. Um, the hospital opened an urgency type of clinic at the, at the uh, you know, a few blocks away from us. And that helps people um, that have other needs. So we're not completely full, but we do not advertise. And so it's just what we get word of mouth. We think we have enough, but we're still taking patients. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Your calls for more content have not fallen on deaf ears. I am so excited to announce the My DPC Story Patreon community. Delve into exclusive full-length interviews with pioneers like Dr. Niti Kapoor, our inaugural physician guest, and get further enlightening insights from our current season's doctors, starting with Dr. Harpreet Sui. Hear our guests share even more, from their worst days to their best days and everything in between. Get access to this treasure trove of conversations and more by joining our My DPC Story community now. Check out the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com forward slash mydpcstoryfan. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash mydpcstoryfan. When you say that, when you say that you think you have enough, can you describe to the listeners, what does that mean in terms of uh, your the way that your workflow is going during the day, how many emails you answer per day. What what does having enough look like for you guys? A usual day for for me would be three to five patients a day. But you know, usually spend the day at the office. People that um, sometimes want to have a video consult or their refills to be made or uh, like you say, emails draw blood early in the morning, um, which we have a nurse that works for us. So we are actually Dr. Oscar, our nurse, Mary, and our and myself. And they, uh, among the three of them, the, of us, I'm sorry, we uh, take care of all the patients all day. But, you know, the day, it goes at a much slower pace. The patients can spend as much or as little time as they want. And the main thing, their time is respected. If they have an appointment at five, at four o'clock, their appointment is going to be right at four o'clock. We are very careful with patients' time. That's wonderful. And w- with you guys offering telemedicine as well, do you offer visits after hours if somebody like a parent is unable to make a weekday appointment? Yes, we do. I have 
like sometimes a couple of times I've had a, gone on a Saturday to the clinic, opened it up and see a patient that needed to be seen because of wheezing or whatever. And it's, it's not very often, but it does happen. Yes. Suturing, you know, like sometimes somebody cuts themselves and usually that doesn't happen on uh, business hours, right? They can happen uh, in the afternoon or on a weekend. So we do that. Yes. I definitely, I'm laughing here because yeah, injuries don't tend to happen between eight to five, Monday through Friday. When you guys were in your private practice and then you signed on with, um, United Regional. Yeah. Yeah. When you guys were in your private practice and transitioned from your private practice to signing on with the hospital, United Regional Physicians, what led to that transition specifically? Well, the main reason is um, when Obamacare happened, a lot of the private offices um, began to join hospitals because there were a lot of requirements and a lot of, um, um, what's the word for that? Paperwork. Paperwork. uh, You have to Medicare, because we were Medicare participants, you know, we were supposed to meet a certain quotas and certain requirements. And it was becoming more and more difficult to manage the practice with just our own resources. And so we decided that it was better if we joined the hospital. By that time, they had already, they were already pushing for doctors not to practice, admitting their own patients to the hospital. And so that also hit our revenue. There was a lot of difficulty in, in that category. Then Kissy joined the hospital when she came from um, Fort Worth. And, you know, for two doctors, uh, economically, it made sense at the time. And that was the main reason why we joined them. Yeah, it, yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was uh, the Medicare kind of requirements to kind of keep, uh, uh, be able to do the billing and be able to kind of participate to be Medicare participant or Medicaid. They weren't required that you had to do all these kind of parameters or whatever that you had to send it to them and be uh, compliant with that. It's a lot of kind of paperwork, uh, you know, kind of consume a lot of your of your money there, and they don't send you money for that. Part of that was also the uh, electronic medical record that we had to implement it though too. Okay, that we didn't have uh, medical, uh, you know, electronic medical records then. So, but. The, the government said, yeah, we need to have a record, but we want to send you money for you. It's your problem. So all the kind of stuff, you know, kind of put you in a big kind of financial yeah, and, kind of stress. Uh, and then... Uh, meaningful so, use came with that yeah, too. So it was not about. just to have electronic medical records, but you also have to comply with meaningful use of the electronic medical records. So you need you needed to demonstrate to the government uh, whatever you were saying with the, uh, with your electronic medical records. And I mean, it really takes a lot of manpower and a lot of money to keep a private practice running like that. So that's why we joined the hospital. And at the same time, you know, we used to see our own patients. I meet a patient for pneumonia, I meet a patient for glomerular disease or whatever, and, uh, and see the patients in the hospital, made rounds. And then go to your practice and do your uh, private practice there, too. And and uh, so the hospital say uh, we don't want the family doctors to come to the hospital anymore. And basically everybody had to win off from the hospital, so they're going to end up with hospitalists and stuff. So there was a lot of kind of movement, you know, kind of completely change the whole way to practice. So uh, it make it kind of difficult. So and Kissy come over and uh, made this thing easy for us. Said she didn't want to work with us and. She said, I'm going to join the hospital. I don't want to deal with this stuff. I just want to have a paycheck, and that was it. So it make it simple for that. I said, well, I guess probably we can do that, too. And uh, we just kind of switch over. And then at the same time, we uh, after four years, we we start practicing uh, with the with the hospital. And same stuff, okay? The hospital, because they were pushed by the government. Also, you had to meet some quota. You had to do an uh, some parameters that were measuring you against the or peers and all the kind of stuff. And so they, they give you set of eight as a goal. And then uh, you, you made the goal. So next time will be nine and next time will be 10. I keep pushing and keep pushing. You never, they're never satisfied, you know, whatever you do, you always, you know, never can get the goal. So all the kind of stuff. And beside that, you know, the hospital didn't like the resident program that we have here in town. 
and uh, that kind of threw the uh, uh, the last drop out of the of the glass uh, when they said that they're gonna shut down the resident program. We were very supportive of them. We were teaching to them too as well. So when they do that, we said that's enough with the hospital. We don't want to do it with this stuff. And then uh, so Dobra, we decided to go to DPC. And I I didn't know that prior to talking with you guys, but you know it. It's just, I'm shaking my head here because it's just so disappointing that this is where our healthcare system has gone. You know, as a resident who experienced full scope rural family medicine, um, specifically for myself, I, I created my own track for rural family medicine. And I went back out to Nebraska during residency where the physicians are only family practice doctors. And so mm-hmm. the fact that you guys were supporting a residency to train the future doctors in family medicine with all of the experience that you had brought to the table, especially still practicing hospital medicine, it's it's just devastating to hear that. Yeah, it was sad. We have gone through at least three changes in our practice because of, you know, governmental things and hospital changes. But uh, one of the saddest thing was having to leave the practice of uh, admitting our own patients. And then the, the, the next saddest thing uh, was having to quit teaching residents after they closed the residency program. I was actually interim program director for about two years and was part of the faculty at the beginning of my life in medicine here. And so that was very sad for me. And one of the reasons why I was ready to leave the hospital, I didn't want to have anything to do with them at the end. Yeah. We are so happy to tell happen. We don't want to deal with you anymore. <laughs> Get out of my office now because they were renting our office then. Okay. And they were paying us for the office. And we were getting a paycheck for the hospital too in our own office. But we didn't sell the building to them. So when, when we done them, we were kind of happy when they kind of showed that the resident to say that we don't want to deal with you. We just want to go ahead and uh, quit working with you and get out of our office now because we want to take it back. <laughs> so they give that satisfaction, okay? <laughs> hey, I hear you. At, you know, at least there was a little little satisfaction there with all of the, the dissatisfaction that you guys were experiencing. I think that's so important that you guys shared that because if there are physicians out there who have been in their own private practice clinic or have been part of a hospital system, it goes back to what you're saying in terms of your recommendation for those who are entering medicine in general after residency you know, experience the the fee-for-service model. And I think again on how pretty much everybody I meet in DPC, in the DPC space has their story of what pushed their buttons so far that they were done. And for you guys, you know, hearing about how the the hospital system continued to change. And then once they dropped the residency, that, that was it for you guys. It goes back to that idea that you can't really I mean, yes, you can learn from others what the experience is like in fee-for-service, but if you have experienced corporate medicine in fee-for-service and being told by somebody, you know, you're not seeing enough patients or your diabetes A1C numbers are not controlled and, you know, you, you think as a doctor, you know, how is somebody who's not a clinician, who is who did not go to medical school telling me what I need to do. I, I, I Yeah. And you know, there, one other interesting thing that was ha- happening with the hospital, they were comparing us with nurse practitioners. They were actually comparing the same parameters and they were putting us on the same list with their nurse practitioners that were under the supervision of one of their doctors and compare us with them. And of course, they were always better, you know, because they no, were all amazing. always being yes, helped and corrected by their primary care that they were working with. And so that was another thing that uh, pushed our buttons, you know, that they were comparing pears and oranges in a situation that was completely different. So we made them do a different list, you know, compare nurse practitioners with nurse practitioners and compare doctors with doctors. You can't put us on the same list. And that's how they would actually keep us 
under their boot, you know, uh, that it's a way to tell you that you're not as important. You're, you know, they can, they can substitute you very, very quickly. Yeah. And just given the years that you guys worked to earn your medical degrees and to earn your, your place in the medical community in Burke Burnett, it's just, it's insulting. It was. In the beginning, when you talked about what DPC meant to you, Dr. Rosa, when you talk about freedom, what did that look like at the beginning of your practice in DPC? And what does that look like now? Well, let me tell you, at first we were going to join Dr. Blackwell. (laughs) And uh, we were going to try to make a a single office, uh, like we were going to be there, a satellite practice of her practice here, because she was already full. But even that was part of uh, what we did not want at the time, you know. And so we decided that we were going to go on our own. And so she has her DPC practice here in Wichita Falls, and we continue with our practice in Burnett. So that's what freedom meant for us, you know, because it would have been a lot easier if Kisi just helped us manage the uh, yeah the 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 management part of the of the clinic. But we had been in private practice ahead of her, and even though she had a lot to teach us. We somehow knew, my husband especially, Dr. Oscar has always been the managing partner, uh, knew how to manage an office. So for us, freedom was freedom from everything and from everybody. So we basically came alone. And so right now, uh, it means that I have my own schedule. It means that like I don't work on Wednesdays. It means that I see my patients for as long as I want to see them. Nobody can tell me how many minutes I can spend with them. The best practices continue in our office. We actually are very careful with that. But like I said, with the experience that we have, it makes a difference to feel secure and safe of what you're doing. So that's, that's what it means for me. Maybe Dr. Oscar wants to say something else. Yeah, I guess it's going back to long, long time, the way that doctors used to practice, okay? You took care of the patient, you practice medicine, nobody tell you how you're going to run, how to practice medicine, and the patient, you deal with the patient directly. Uh, you send the bill, you give the patient to the bill right there, and the patient pay you right there. So back to the basic, back what it used to be, back what the country doctor used to do, and go and see patients at home, you know, I get paid right there and it's been respected and uh, you do whatever you feel is the best for your patient. Okay, now we have a lot of people in between the patient and us that tell us what to do. They tell the patient how much they can spend on the staff, how much they're going to cover the medications and services. And I tell the doctor, you cannot charge that much. We're going to pay you whatever we want and you can keep yourself quiet. Okay, and don't, don't start screaming or whatever. So the doctors are very independent, okay? So we're supposed to be have their own mind. All we are, all the doctors, we are like that. And the administrators want to put the, the pressure on you to tell you who's the boss. And we don't like bosses. The doctors have independent mind. We all are. So we don't like bosses at all. And that's what the government tried to do. Put somebody that does nothing about medicine because of money has the power over you. DPC gives you the opportunity to go back to what you're supposed to do, practice medicine, take care of your patients, and you do the best you can to take care of them. Absolutely. Now, when you guys were transitioning into your DPC clinic, what challenges did you guys overcome having thought in the space of your private practice clinic with billing insurances to an insurance-free practice? You know, the most difficult part of this was to actually train the patients and uh, (laughs) teach the patients and make them understand how the system works. They uh, still have a hard time understanding how they pay a monthly fee, even if they don't come. You know, Uh, there are some patients that have come join us and then after six months get an insurance and they call and say, you know what, we just got insurance, so we're going to leave. And you know what? They turn around and come right back because they had no idea. They had not really understood the the concept, you know, of primary care. 
so that's really uh, the 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 most difficult thing like i said has been making the patients understand the concept of dpc and then for me the most difficult part is always the managing part um so i'm sure oscar can tell you a lot about that and her and Ke- him and kisi have actually found a system to work together. We call her when we have a problem and she teaches us how to do it. Uh, I mean, she's really good at um, managing her office and she's really good at teaching him how to, how to do it. So our nurse and Oscar know what they're doing with the money. I have no idea. <laughs> Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you to Spruce Health for supporting the MyDPC Story podcast. The ways we communicate have changed dramatically over the past decades, but technology and tools in healthcare have not kept pace. Patients want more access and digital convenience, as well as the ability to text their care teams. Care teams are inundated with more communication and rising expectations, but are still using tools and technology stuck in prior decades. Spruce Health created a solution for the tech-forward DPC practice by creating a communication product designed to serve both the patient and the doctor through intuitive HIPAA-compliant workflows, tagging, scheduled messages, and triage templates ready for use, whether you're on your phone or in the exam room. New users get 20% off for the first 12 months of a paid plan with code MARYAL20. That's M-A-R-Y-A-L-2-0. So check out Spruce Health today at sprucehealth.com or check out the link in the show notes. I think that, I mean, yes, I, I get it that he's also your daughter, but in general, the DPC community is so supportive when it comes yeah. to, you know, yeah. I, I'm not sure how to do this. Can somebody help me out? And even just putting, you know, a, a general SOS out there on, on, on public forums, you'll get so many different ways to think about doing medicine. So I think that that's, it goes to, you know, Dr. Ross, your comment about, you know, we don't like bosses. I, <laughs> I think that that is, that is felt in the bones of every person who is a believer in, in DPC. And a physician, you know, we are physicians, I like that. We're supposed to be independent, thinking, okay? And we're supposed to kind of solve problems for the patients, okay? And instead to kind of have you to solve problems, people make your the life difficult, okay? It may seem difficult for you to, to take care of patients, okay? The, the administrators want to kind of tell you who is the boss because they pay the bill. And uh, they're going to say, no, you cannot do this, you cannot do that, you can try this over here or whatever. So they don't know anything, okay? Why are they going to go ahead and just tell us what to do? Yeah, I'm going to give you a a quick example of what um, that means. Uh, We've always been used to take care of our emergencies. We do have a little emergency room, you know, that we built for that. And the hospital, one of the first things that they did was they took away our emergency equipment, our crash cart, we called it. And we had actually gone for a week to give them room to move in, you know, and kind of set it up the way they wanted it. And when we came back and we figured out we didn't have an ambu bag, we didn't have any medications to give patients that would show up as an emergency. It takes 20 minutes for an ambulance to make it from Wichita Falls to Burgonet. And we could not make them understand that that was not the way you practice in Burke. You have to take care of patients right there. And, um, you know, their only explanation was that because we didn't do it often enough, it was not safe that we took care of our patients there. Does that give you an idea of what we were dealing with? It makes me feel physically so uncomfortable to hear that because... As a person who physically lives 45 minutes from the nearest hospital, it's just, it's so wrong, right? Right. I have no other words other than wrong because, because who suffers at the end of the day is the patients. Right. Exactly. So anyway, we, that's why we were so happy to be able to say goodbye to them. And now we keep in our office, whatever equipment we need to take care of the patients. And I cannot tell you how many times we have actually even got the hospital out of trouble because we did it anyways. You know, if the patient showed up there like they always did, 
we did it and they they couldn't say anything about it if you save a life you know uh right there right then um whether they like it or not that's the way uh small town life is but now we can do it our way and uh, that was one of the things that uh that we do differently again like we used to in back in the old days with the residency not being there anymore do you guys have medical students and residents come out to your DPC practice and see what you guys do? We don't have anybody right now. And part of this, of course, you know, COVID came in the picture. We have had requests from medical students. And the problem is that with COVID, you know, you have to provide PPD for them too. PPE, I'm sorry, uh, equipment. um, And it became difficult to have them. But as soon as we're able to, you know, if uh, a medical student wants to come and see what we do or a resident, we will be more than happy to accommodate them. Um, That's what we used to do. You know, we had a resident every month. They would come to do their family medicine rotation, rural rotation with us. So uh, we are willing and, and we probably will as soon as we can. What has your PPE situation been just for yourself and, and Mary, your, your guys' nurse? Actually, we have received uh, equipment from the TMA, Texas Medical Association, and we have been able to purchase our own. Um, so we're, we're doing okay. We, you know, because we don't see that many patients, you know, during the day, we don't really have a lot of trouble with that. But we do uh, obtain samples. We do it at the parking lot. So we do utilize the whole, you know, gowns and mask and um, face covers, et cetera. It's becoming less and less, thanks God, but uh, we, we've been doing it. So. And will you guys plan on carrying the vaccine for your patients in the future? Well, I mean, we have every other vaccine, but we don't have the COVID vaccine because uh, it wasn't available through our supplier. So uh, I don't know. They they really, I guess, they wanted in, in kind of large amounts. You know, they want to uh, vaccinate tons of people instead to have few hundreds. So, but uh, if we had available through our supplier, we would be able to get, you know, we'd be happy to do it. So it's a matter that... Uh, Just like we do with the flu shot, you know. Eventually, I think uh, if this becomes a yearly injection, I guess we're going to we're going to do that ourselves, too. And I would hope that you guys could leverage the fact that you guys are, you know, geographically within 30 minutes of Kissy's clinic that you guys could argue that, you know, your your total population is greater than just the individual clinics populations. Yes. I mean, it's, it's really not 30 minutes away. It's about 15 minutes away. But. Yeah. It's only 10 miles or 75 miles per hour from here, okay? <laughs> yeah, but the the population is different too, you know. the uh, We only have 15,000 people in Burrock? Less than 14,000. 14,000, yeah. So our population, it's a lot less. Uh, we do have a base, uh, the Shepherd Air Force Base. Uh, we do get some patients from there. And uh, you had a question about the Chickasaw um, Indians. Uh, we do have some patients from the from uh, that population. Uh, not many, but um, I end up sending prescriptions to the Chickasaw uh, Medication Distribution Center. That's how come I, I know more about that. It was kind of funny that you asked about because I just recently been dealing with them about a patient. So, yeah. Dr. Rosa, with you seeing patients from the Chickasaw Nation, do you see any challenges with a DPC taking care of patients from particular nations? I don't see any, any, I mean, because you cannot make a difference of where the patients come from, uh, uh, I don't change the system and I don't charge them more or less or make any um, changes because of where the patients are coming from. If you, I guess you could make a specific arrangements with specific populations or places of work or something like that, but uh, I don't really see any problems at all. No. 
it's, it's really interesting to hear because I've never personally worked in Indian health. And so I love that you're able to just seamlessly give care to someone from a particular nation, in your case, the Chickasaw Nation, like you are any anybody else. I mean, it makes common sense to me, but that's good that, you know, as you're dealing with the bureaucracy that exists in fee-for-service, that there's no added layers that you're experiencing from patients who are of a particular nation who, as we know, you know, care to in the indigenous population is very skewed compared to people who have other forms of insurance. Right. But because we're not dealing with insurance, you know, like I said, um, and like I was telling you before, the education of the patients um, is our biggest challenge on how to um, have them come over and join your practice and understand what you can do for them. Um, so the more, the most I deal with or that we deal with in that sense is uh, they have to use their car to be able to get the medication. And so they may or may not have the medicine and you have to get prior authorizations. I mean, we still are not able to get uh, out of that box, but we do what we can, you know, try to help the patients to get the best. And so they get their medications, uh, some of them free, some of them don't, but, um, but it, you know, it can be done. It, it's just a matter of educating the patients. I'll ask you guys a question that I asked Kissy as well. How do you guys work with the law that exists in Texas with regards to physicians and self-dispensing? We are not allowed to self-dispense here. We can actually dispense samples, but we cannot sell and dispense medications for a price. I think there is a law, and we, or to be honest with you, we haven't even explored that, but I think you could provide three days or something uh, like uh, emergency, emergency weekend. Uh, weekend kind of medicine, but it's not not something that we regularly do. Uh, we're still fighting for that. I think they are talking about it in the legislature, but I don't think we are allowed to dispense medications. But we, we, we have some other services that probably, I don't know you heard about then, it's like good RX. Okay, that uh, basically if the patient joined there for $100 or something a year, they get very discounted prices in all the medication. Okay, and it's really good. It's called goodrx.com. Uh, it, there's an app also in, in, the, uh, in the iPhone and also in the Android that patients have access. Whenever you prescribe something for them, they can look at it immediately. They can choose which pharmacy is the less expensive one in your community. So that seems to work very well for a lot of patients because it really makes a big difference in the payment for medication when they go to the pharmacy. And no other pharmacies accept it. You know, Walmart doesn't accept good Rx because they have a own program of $4 kind of deal. The other pharmacy sometimes is, is convenient to go and check the other pharmacy locally and, and pick whatever is less expensive. Sometimes the problem is with that is that <laughs> patient get one one medication in Walmart, the other medication in uh, our pharmacy, and it's kind of joking around. So a lot of time we get confused and what we're going to send the prescription. <laughs> but we try, we, so we, we don't dispense, but we try to help the patients to find the cheapest alternatives, you know, and cheapest pharmacies for them. Absolutely. And just as a side note, yeah, Kissy, what she explained to me was that she'll do the three-day, she'll, mm-hmm. she'll, what she can do to self-dispense with the three-day rule because of the law still having, you know, not passed the the legal hurdles in in Texas for you guys to self-dispense. Geographically, is Brooke Burnett far from a mainstream pharmacy like CVS or uh, Walgreens, or do you guys have one of those types of pharmacies in town? We Well, we do have local pharmacies. We have two. And then there is a Walmart that is probably about 50 minutes away. 15. 15 minutes away, yeah. So it's, it's really not that difficult, you know. Uh, and the local pharmacies are pretty good on trying to help the patients too. So we don't really have a lot of difficulty there. We do dispense flu vaccines, but those are in a different category. We charge a minimum whatever they the our cost. Yeah, our cost basically is what we charge the patients. 
But that, like I said, it's in a different category that they don't look at it as medications. Uh, we also dispense, uh, like I am medicines, you know, uh, things that are needed to give relief in the clinic, you know, for a very nominal price, you know, like if the patient needs something for a toradol injection for a headache or something, you know, they'll pay like $6 or yeah, something like that. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Injection, uh, you know, like a knee injection, you know, uh, atrocentesis and stuff like this, or maybe injection in the shoulder, steroids and stuff like this, and little procedures and stuff. Uh, last time I did a circumcision in an in in adult that, <laughs> because uh, he didn't have the money to go and see the urologist. So I did it for him and it didn't cost him any money, okay? So I just paid the membership fee. That's pretty That's incredible. What we're talking about, you need to have some experience because, you know, that patient, you know, needs some help. He don't have the $400 to go and see the, the doctor for the first time and then charge another 500 for the procedure, okay? And he having phimosis big time, okay? And the guy had problems, infection and everything else. So I just buy the bottle and do it in the office. And Mary was very, <laughs> very, very worried about it. But he did okay, you know, sense got okay. So, I mean, it's stuff like this that you need experience to be able to kind of provide the best care you can for your patients at the DPC. Do you guys offer services to non-members? No. No. We basically um, try to stay away from non-members. Yeah, that's that's the short answer to that. And you're talking about like somebody coming in and and doesn't have um, a contract with us and needs any sick, like a sick clinic. Is that what you're asking? So more so if you guys had someone who needed like a procedure, for example, would you offer one-off services for like a mole removal or a knee injection? Probably not because, you know, you want to build a relationship with, with the patient, you know, be able to take care of that. I mean, it's, this is like working in the ER, okay? So the ER doctors have just one chat with the patient. So you made a mistake, you know, you made in big trouble. So you want to build a relationship in family practice in order to kind of feel safe that you're going to take care of the patient and the patient have a, a rapport with you. So I don't want to go ahead and be just kind of just looking for the money we can say doing that kind of just so one deal kind of procedure and then uh, that's it. Well, I think I think some primary care, some direct primary care doctors are doing like cosmetic procedures and things like that for people that just walk in. But we're not. We only do uh, work for our patients that are contracted with us. Definitely. And I think that, you know, you guys for for your patients, that's the value that you bring to them. Like if you are patient population, you get access to this type of service. Without having to pay anything extra, right? Absolutely. Now, I want to go back to the education part of your potential patients. What is your elevator speech when you're talking to either patients, family members who are not yet patients who are thinking about it, or just members of the general public who are learning about the practice but are not really sure if it's right for them? Well, we talk more about the personalized service to the patients, being able to come and see us when they're needing it, they can reach us anytime they need us. Uh, they have the possibility of telemedicine if that's what they prefer. And for the patients that don't have insurance, it really becomes a big difference. And in, in that, they then understand what it means to have insurance and what it means to have a doctor, which are not exactly the same thing. Yeah, that would be our short version of, a, like you said, elevator spiel. Well, I tell the patients, uh, I mean, you have access to me or a phone call away. Right now, with your insurance, you have a wall. Between you and the doctor, there's a big wall that you have to jump on it in order to access the doctor. And when you be able to get to see, to talk to the doctor about your issues and your problem, okay, you need to be seen right away. People are going to turn you down and send you to the emergency room or to some kind of rapid clinic, clinic, clinic care kind of office because uh, he doesn't have time for you because his uh, schedule is full. All right? So you're a phone call away from me. Okay? You call me, the nurse will answer the phone immediately, or I will answer the phone personally. And that's it. So you're never going to get this anywhere else. 
It doesn't matter if you have insurance or not, you don't have access to your doctor what you need through the insurance kind of deal. Yeah. So that's a different put in, put in a different way. Yeah. Like you guys mentioned how some of your patients will get insurance and then six months later, they'll find themselves right back on your doorstep because they realize that, oh yeah, I actually could just call my doctor. Yeah. And they said, I have a, a toothache and I need a some antibiotics. I haven't pain or whatever. And the doctor can assist you. Go to the ER, go to the clinic care, go to the uh, rapid clinic or whatever. Can I see you here? And then you spend $150 or whatever, you know, for visit the doctor just for that visit, you know. And then uh, you can call me and uh, Mary answer the phone or I will answer the phone. Sometimes when Mary is sick, you know, uh, unfortunately, Mary gets sick with the COVID this time, you know, and she was, was out of the office for two weeks. And guess what? Dr. Rosanar, I answer the phone, she answers the phone, we take care of patients, send the prescription, uh, see the patients in the office, uh, do the bar of sand, the home and jar. I mean, you just name it, okay? We do everything ourselves, okay? So, and, and, and the patient were kind of surprised that we seen us doing the whole deal ourselves. <laughs> well, picking up the trash and, <laughs> and cleaning also. <laughs> It's it, it basically the access. It's basically the way that it's supposed to be back with the country doctor. You call him and he come and see you at, at your house or come and see you. You come to the office, take care of you, and you pay the bill right there. Now we have somebody in between the doctor and the patient making the calls. Yeah. That unfortunately is, is our healthcare system in the insurance world. Do you guys offer home visits for your patients? Yes, I used, to, uh, I used to have a patient that had to go to uh, Ran, uh, Granfield. That is uh, 10, 50 uh, miles away from Bourbonnet. It's a town in Oklahoma, actually. And uh, my patient was very sick. You know, he couldn't come to visit me. So he just went to see it to his house. Yeah, yeah so we, do ho- we do home visits quite know all the patients. You know, we got the patients that can come in. You know, we can do it in the tele, tele, uh, video, video chat. That would be okay. But. But the patient need to be seen in the uh, home. I, I, I want to visit. Yeah, me too. I I have a couple of hospice patients that I do has uh, home visits also. So yeah. And Dr. Rosa, how do you manage hospice patients in terms of if a patient wishes to use a hospice company? Like there are hospital-run hospices and private hospices. Do you manage everything from admission to when they pass or, or do you work in conjunction with other hospices and have those hospice companies bill Medicare for hospice services? How does it work for you? Actually, I allow for the doctor from hospice to manage the patient. And I think Dr. Oscar does the same thing too. But I was actually working for a hospice until not so long ago as an extra on the side job, they needed somebody and I, and I helped them. So I became, for some of my patients, I was the hospice patient and, and my, they were my patients too. So which, you know, that was a little complicated, but, but it, but it can be worked up, you know, it's no problem at all. But for the most part, uh, the patient's doctor, the hospice doctor is the one that will give, because I don't want any confusion in regards to especially pain medications and stuff like that. And if the patient is hospice, there are some things that will be covered by their Medicare. And if I get involved because I have opt out of Medicare, I can complicate things out. So it's better to just leave the, the hospice physician take care of that. And when you were doing the side job with hospice, was that prior to opting out of Medicare or well, while you- oh, it was, it was actually uh, now as a DPC doctor, but there was another doctor. The problem is that she was pregnant and she was needing help. So everything they were paying me kind of like a, you know, like a fee, like whatever they pay, you know, an hour. And I think all the paperwork uh, was going under her name. The, the, the Medicare uh, charges for the hospice was actually signed by the other doctor in order to do their charges and stuff. You said that they offered you the job. Yeah, they did offer me the job, but I, they I'm want, not, I'm not gonna they, they want, join Medicare just to join hospice. You know, <laughs> they wanted to join Medicare so she can go ahead and she worked with uh, okay, again with Medicare. So no, I don't. I, thank you, thank you, but no, thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that because I know that recently there's been some chatter about 
how to manage hospice as a DPC doctor uh, on some of the public forums. So thank you so much for sharing about that. Yeah, and that's that's the problem, you know. If if the patient uh, has Medicare, you, you actually have to uh, you would have to opt in with Medicare again to be able to you know honor those services. And so I don't I don't think it's a very good combination. I mean, you can do it, but it would be uh, different. With you guys, and I know we touched on the residency, but have other doctors reached out to you who? are in private practice or who are in hospital uh, fee-for-service clinics to ask about joining DPC? And and if so, what fears have you heard from those doctors? Well, I just had uh, one that um, reached out to me last week. Um, She's a hospitalist and she wants to leave the hospitalist environment and become DPC. And so we're in the process of, um, you know, I already talked to Kisi about her. And so I'm going to give her this book. It's called Direct Primary Care Practice that she can read. I think I I advised her to get educated on it first. Uh, This is one of uh, my residents that I had when uh, I was at the residency program. And so she is thinking seriously about doing the transition. So, you know, probably we'll refer her to the Direct Primary Care Alliance to try to get more resources there and see what happens. But but we do. We, have to go to the too. Yeah, she probably has to go to one of the meetings, too. But we, we have had um, people that ask about the practice and how we do it. I mean, it, it's, it's a process, you know, it's not something that you get to do it right away. So we have to educate ourselves first and then go into it. Mainly the education, you know, they don't really understand exactly how is it that we sustain ourselves if somebody is just paying us $50 a month. And so when you sit down with them and really explain how it is, you know, and how the numbers actually end up uh, uh, every month, depending on how many patients you have, um, at first, they have a hard time understanding how how it's done. I mean, a lot of these doctors are like this, this doctor that is working as a hospital, she's making good money there, but she doesn't, but she wants to go back and be in her boss. You know, she wants to get out of the, get from underneath the boot. So she needs to, she needs to educate herself and figure it out first. In addition to the book that you mentioned and the DPC Alliance, do you have any other resources that you recommend to others using? Kissy Blackwell. She's an expert at this time, okay? She's been very educated on and she's an entrepreneur, okay? So she very good entrepreneur doctor, yeah. And she she will she will help too because she she loves it so much that she will help people because she she was helped a lot also when she started. And so she's paying back that. So she was willing to help anybody, okay. And she she's very active, I guess, in the uh, Alliance, yeah, in the, in the alliance, and also in the uh, DPC kind of uh, Facebook, whatever, whatever deal is over the group and the Facebook. Oh yeah, yeah. She she was kind of looking at this stuff, and she's answered everybody's question too. <laughs> so that's an awesome answer, and only one, <laughs> <laughs> only one that could could so lovingly come from her parents. I absolutely love this. But yeah, Kissy is definitely uh, so selfless when it comes to helping others uh, sur- succeed in DPC. You have seen, you have seen that in Facebook. She always kind of answers everybody's questions there. She does. <laughs> no, we didn't touch on your transition from Nicaragua. Well, uh, of course, there is a lot of time between the time we came to the United States and when we were accepted at the Wichita Falls Family Practice Residency. There are seven years there that, you know, where we we worked at hospitals in Houston while we were passing our exams. And, uh, you know, I drew blood. I was a phlebotomist. And Dr. Oscar was a telemetry technician first, and then he was a um, surgical, assistant. surgical assistant and a heart cath lab assistant. Technician, I guess you can say. Yeah. So when the initials of the uh, 
hardcat and also the uh, PTCA, you know, the, the, the beginnings of that back in the in 1983, 80, 84, something like that. You know, I was involved in that as a technician working with the nurses and, and the doctors and the cardiologists. So it was a lot of learning, you know, but uh, uh, even though you pass the test, it doesn't matter. I mean, uh, nobody gave an opportunity to go into the residence. So so we basically stayed, even passed the test maybe five years before we can get into the resident program. And, and that was one of those lucky times that when we, uh, I recall that we had the, uh, uh, what is that? The the matching book, the, the matching match. book that they give it after the the matching was was done. So all the uh, places available <clears throat> that, that were no match. So start you know checking you know the book from the beginning, and at the end of the book by four o'clock was Wichita Falls, uh, and uh, so I said, well, let's try Wichita Falls, the last one in the book over there. So we'll see what we come up with and. And at that time, uh, we, can, we, we heard Wichita Falls. We kind of remember there was one of our, our friend's doctor that was making that one residency there. So we made sure about that. And then uh, when I called, I just mentioned then his name. And uh, I said, so you want to know anything about me? Just kind of consult with him. And, and that was it. And 15 minutes later, they give us a call back and said, yes, uh, we consult with this guy, with Dr. Uh, Molina. And he... Uh, he can say, yeah, that guy is okay. Go ahead and give it a chance to, for an interview. And I said, uh, uh, the medical director's coming to Houston. We were in Houston then. And I said, uh, I want to see you in the medical center. I have a meeting there. But by the time it was maybe 11 o'clock or something like that, and bring your papers with you. Uh, that was it. So, uh, I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a long story. I mean, it make it short, you know, but... Uh, uh, That's how we ended up in Wichita Falls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then a year later, I went into the same residency program. I actually think it's really important, though, because um, because it wasn't, you know, an easy. Oh, yeah, I just went into residency after I after we you know fled from Nicaragua to the States um, <laughs> that, you know, that you guys did work and what you were doing, because so the way I think about it is, okay, so say there's someone out there who is applying for medical school and they are serving right now as a phlebotomist, or they are serving right now as a teletech and they hear your story. I mean, they might reach out to you to be like, how, how did you gain the confidence to change from doing telemetry technician or working with a cardiologist office or doing phlebotomy? to becoming a doctor, you know? So I think it's really important um, to include those those little details. Um, I, I don't think they're monotonous. I mean, it's like, heck, like I used to teach zoo camp and I, I use that, the lessons that I learned from teaching kids every day when I see kids in the office, right? So <laughs> yeah. I think that's important. So um, I love it. And yeah. I, I, it just, it, it really flushes out, you know, your, your medical journey. When, when you guys think about everything you've been through, your transition from living in Nicaragua to coming to the States and practicing medicine in fee-for-service and then now in DPC, what are some techniques that you guys use to thrive as individuals, as a couple, and as DPC doctors? Well, uh, it's persistent, okay? We all doctors are persistent, okay? You want to be a doctor, it doesn't matter how far away it is, how difficult it will be, you're going to be fighting until you get what you want. So that's what you need. So it doesn't matter how difficult it makes it for you to kind of go through, become a doctor. We were physicians back in Nicaragua. We had difficult with the war. We had to leave. We had to learn the language here. We had to keep passing the test in English. Uh, we passed it two, three years after that. Uh, we couldn't get no, uh, uh, basically, uh, interviews because, I mean, uh, they don't know us. Okay, so you don't have no help inside the system here in the United States. Uh, it's very difficult for you to get an interview. So finally, until, you know, it kind of break through, you know, because a friend of mine, Dr. Molina, uh, kind of gave it the okay. Uh, the interview okay so it's persistent okay so you want to be a doctor it's a long way you don't get scared about it 
you keep pushing yourself. And that's what you need. You basically just kind of be persistent what you want. So doctor, we all are like that, okay? Or why you cannot be a physician because it's a long, it's a long career. You know, four years over here, five years over there, you know, 10, 15 years and keep pushing yourself. You have to keep learning all the time. So it's a difficult. Uh, it's time to be a priest. The physician is the second one. <laughs> and I have, a, I have a friend that he was a physician and then became a priest. How about that? <laughs> well, I think consistency, persistence, and um, you have to have faith on yourself and you know, just keep on, keep on going. Uh, as a couple, we always supported each other. When one is weak, the other one is strong. And so uh, you can limp on one side, but the other one will help you get out of the hole. So uh, it's been, we've been married for 43 years now and we have worked together all of those years in the same office so people still ask us how how do we do it i don't know how we do it i guess a lot of love for the profession and a lot of love for each other that's so wonderful so i want to ask you guys now if others wish to reach out to you after this podcast what's the best way to get a hold of you both well you have our phone numbers um yeah they need to identify as a doctor whoever but i want to talk to us because you know, with all this kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, spam and all the kind of uh, robocalls and stuff, if we don't know where this comes from, we don't answer the phone. Yeah, so if, if, if it, it comes through the office, actually, and, and, and they the get doctor, to, whoever want to yeah, talk to you, you we, know, we'll call them back. It's no problem at all. Yeah, they can reach us through the uh, home of the office. Perfect. And I'll make sure to include the uh, your yes. contact information on the accompanying blog with your podcast. Yes. Yes, that will be fine. We'll be more than happy to help anybody that needs help. Yeah. And then we refer it to Kissy Blackwell. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such an honor to speak with you both today. Thank you so much, Dr. Rosa and Dr. Oscar, for joining us today on the podcast. We enjoy talking to you, Dr. Concepcion. You are very nice. And uh, I wish you the best with your with your program and uh, be persistent and consistent. You'll you'll get where you want to get. And if I need any help, I'll ask Dr. Kissy Blackwell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next week, look forward to hearing from Dr. Whitney Pack, formerly of Cortez Pediatrics in Cortez, Colorado. A huge thank you goes out to the listeners who subscribed to the newsletter this week. For those of you not subscribed, there's still time before the first exclusive announcement happens. Let's just say it features a previous guest. To find out more, subscribe to the newsletter today. If you like what you heard today, please leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends, too. For more information on this episode and much more, please visit mydpcstory.com. Also, for the latest in DPC news, check out dpcnews.com. Until next week, this is Marielle Conception.